0: Won't you please open up, if you've got your Bibles or devices, to Psalm 2. Awesome. Psalm 2, verse 1. And just keep your finger there. I want to remind you what we are busy with as a church at the moment. We are responding to a very strong sense from the Lord about being a people, a church that is devoted to God's word. And friends, today I want to remind you, maybe to spur you on, how's your reading going? I haven't asked you in a while. How's your daily reading of Scripture going? Not not daily devotions of of the Bible itself. And I want to spur you on tonight. Hopefully, again, you'll see how reading the Bible every day can stretch your mind and your your paradigm of life. And um, we're going to go back just one side there. I've called today staying in the bigger picture. Last week was called Living in the Bigger Picture, but Psalm 2 won't leave us uh, yet. It wants to call us to similar things tonight. But um, I want to remind you that uh, this is the example of this preaching tonight of, of what God's Word will do for your life and how it will change the way you see things. And you'll notice over the last few weeks, we said really as a human being in this day and age, there are only two ways you can live your life. Two choices. One is what humankind by nature says is right and what we must do. And every single age has had its contemporary culture that has manifested the same sort of mantra, although maybe in different clothes. So today we've got a kind of culture which is ultimately after the same thing, which I'll explain in a moment. But um, it might look a bit different on the outside, but the heart of it is the same. Or the other option is to have this God of the Bible and His Word as the bedrock of your life. And what you choose tonight, can I just remind you, we are preaching about big things. What you choose tonight has got massive consequences for your life. Huge! I don't have time enough to describe what a life can be impacted by, by the decision you make tonight. And we saw a little bit of it in Psalm 1. We saw that you can either be a tree planted by streams of water in climate change and be gloriously fruitful. Or you can be like a piece of husk on a, on, a, on a wheat kernel that gets fluffed away by the wind. Chaff. And friends, today, the consequences of what we choose is not just for this life. It's also for the next. That was last week's sermon. Is that there is a destiny that this world is on that you are on. And it's massive. It's huge. And the thing that we are needing, perhaps more than ever, the most urgent antidote to the culture of our day is having a framework for life that can cope with trouble. Can you just give me a nod if you heard that? That is our problem that we face today. Friends, what you believe is going to be tested by trouble. And... Where we're working towards in the sermon series, the very next psalm is Psalm 3. It is a crisis moment for David who wrote Psalm 2 that I'm about to read. It is the worst moment of his life. His own son Absalom, you'll hear next week, his darling son with beautiful hair, rebels against him, and he starts to plot an overthrow of his own father and tries to kill him. Now, I have a son. That's not a pretty picture, right? Right? But what's amazing about Psalm One and Psalm Two, and particularly in David's case, Psalm Two gives David a framework that is able to cope with massive trouble. And trouble is on the way if you if you aren't in it already. And I was telling to a friend this week, um, any of you got to hear the State of the Nation Address this week? I missed it. But when you want to put it up, well done. I'm really impressed. Well done. I missed it by accident, and um, my friend said to me, "Matt, don't watch it. It's pretty depressing." Economically and politically, these are uncertain times. It's actually often always been the case. Rare have been the moments of history where we have had a sense of external security over our lives. But also, there's a social and spiritual context that I want to make you aware of. Here in East London, we are super blessed. We have a lot of freedom as Bible-believing Christians. But I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, and long may that last, we have the same veins of governments. And social media, with its message perfusing our society, it is not long before we will be saturated with the same struggles that our fellow Christians are feeling across the world in societies where it's really hard to follow the God of the Bible publicly. And so for us as your elders, we're jealous. We want you to have a framework for your life that can cope with reality Because reality is not straightforward, my friends, and we need something bigger than just our own experiences and feelings to cope with what we're going to face in life. And so, tonight, I have called it staying in the bigger picture, because Psalm 1 ends with the bigger picture, but Psalm 2 says, you're not allowed to leave that bigger picture if you are going to have something that you can live by that will be glorious, and Psalm two that we are going to read now. It is a coronation psalm. It's a glory. You know, it's a hymnal, and you get to choose. You know, in the old Baptist churches, maybe still today, some of the Baptist churches they have a hymnal, and you walk into the church, and you've got the, the hymnals uh, numbers on the on the on the wall, right? And you would choose the hymns according to the calendar. And this was the moment in Israel when the new Hebrew king was about to take the throne. They would say, whip out Psalm 2. Get the bassists and the drummers and the guitars. Get the singers. And David was an excellent musician. He was probably the best musician of the Bible. And they would sing this psalm at the coronation of the king. But friends, it's more than a coronation psalm tonight. And this psalm is a massive one in Scripture. It's alluded to 18 times in the New Testament because it's also a messianic psalm. In other words, it's prophetic. It's talking about this coming Savior of the world. And as you read tonight, you'll pick it up. And some of you might even be familiar with some of the phrases of Psalm 2 from just simply reading your Bible. Let's read from verse 1. I've got it up there on the screen as well. All right. Here we go. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. It's a rhetorical question. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh. That's the L-O-R-D capital letter. It is Yahweh and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell her the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, my first point today is that we have to have a big context for our lives, and we have to ask ourselves some questions. I've been telling you every Sunday, I hope that you're paying attention, that as Christians we're meant to think, and that's why this psalm opens up with a question. It says, guys, examine the world around you. Examine the peoples and the nations. Examine the leaders of the world. What what does he mean by that? The social media gurus, the guys that are leading public opinion, the government officials, the legislators and lawmakers, the philosophers of this age. What are they saying and what is their goal and where is this all going? That's the opening question. It's massive. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the God of the Bible, Yahweh. That's why I emphasize L-O-R-D, capital letters. It is the covenantal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his anointed son. That is the issue. It's not about God in general with a small g. It is this covenantal God of the Bible. There is a position that is taking place towards him. There is an entrenched stance towards the Bible. And I want to say, when you read these words, you can see it's not neutral. It's not. Can I say to you, the best thing that you can hear tonight is this: is at the level of nature, by nature of your birth as a human being, and me as well, we are part of the peoples, we have a stance towards the God of the Bible that is not neutral. In actual fact, and I'm going to unpack this for you, just give me the emotional and mental space tonight. The stance is one of rage. When last have you heard that that word? Rage. It's not rational emotion. It's not well-thought-out, cool, calm, and collected arguments. In actual fact, that word in verse 1 of Psalm 2, it means noise. There's this clamor in the nations. There is this bustle and hustle and all these voices raising up. And the voices, the sound bites that are coming through is not pointing you to the words, the God of the Bible, my friend. It is pointing you away from it. In actual fact, it is leading you down a path which all of us can relate to today. Do you know what we want most as human beings? Let me explain it to you tonight. And you'll understand it, parents more so than anyone else. What we want as human beings is absolute freedom. We want to live life on our own terms, to have things our own way, and to be accountable to no one in the way that we choose to live. That's what we want. You know, it's been, forgive me milking this, but it's very real for me. You know, when my children were born, this was such a reality. The second, I want to start applying authority to their lives. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Have you ever seen the drop and roll tantrum? Have you ever seen the moment when the kid goes, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, and specifically in public places, you just want to call him to the ground and die. Friends, we are born chafing under authority. Not so when, when our parents, just I can remember some real doozies with my mom and dad, telling me what I was allowed to do and not to do. Come on, man. What's that? Mate? Can I say to you, the Bible says, all authority on planet Earth is derived from God. Your parents have been instituted over your life by God. And any institution that exercises authority, we chafe against, my friend. And this is the picture. It's a picture of a coronation psalm. And it's the moment where the Hebrew king is to receive all these vassal states. David had Moab and and, and Edom, these these surrounding nations. You know what they have to do? Imagine David's... David, I've never called you that before. Dave, Dave is the king. King David, King David, there we go. And we come and they come and they say, Oh, mighty king, you'd have to come on all fours, or oh. and they would have to kiss you, which I'll get to later, but I went to don't worry. And they, and they have to crawl on all fours, and they to, oh King David, King David. And there was a chafing because these kings were kings with the title and semi-authority, but they had to check everything with the overlord king, and they hated it. And that's why there's this plotting. That's why there's this talk. come on, Adam, Moab. Come on, Edom. Let's, let's, let's get an alliance together to overthrow this Hebrew king. Man, we're chafing under his overlordship. And it is the perfect picture of the human race. My friends, by the nature of our birth, at the level of nature of being a human being, we hate authority. And like these kings, God has dignified us. We've got some authority over our lives. Oh, but we can't stand the fact that there is this shadow of authority over our lives that I want to unpack for you tonight that is holding us accountable for all we do. Let me tell you where the rage comes from. And it's only when someone tells you this. Is that this God of the Bible, Yahweh, it tells you who you can worship. It tells you, how you are, He tells you how you are supposed to live. He tells you what you may and may not do with his stuff. He tells you what you may do with your body and what you may not. Friends, when you start to see the demands of his authority and the commands that he places on the human race, and you start to see this yoke of authority upon the human race itself from this God, there's chafing. We don't like it. We don't nobody here can tell me they like feeling control, being controlled. No one. That's the mantra of this of culture today. There's this rage. There is this pushing back against this God of the Bible. And what I mean by that, this creator, the one that the Bible says has made all things. And you might ask a question if you're thinking about it tonight, what about? A person who has never heard of the God of the Bible before? What about those oaks out in Mongolia and South America who've never heard about Jesus, who've never heard about this God of the Bible? How do they experience this authority over their lives? Because every human being, it says here, that's their goal. They want to throw off these cords and throw off these fetters, the old old-fashioned word, cast away these cords, from us, these bonds. How does authority come universally from God over the human race? Well, the first is this: every single man and woman is born with a conscience. You try and live your life the way you want to live, you will find something pushes back when something is not quite right. Where does that come from? Ever thought? Let me tell you, it's not from evolution. Evolution is kill or be killed. Evolution will say kill the weakling. You might just be hampered in your progress to to perfection with these these wishy-washy DNA pools. Conscience will say love the weak. Where does that come from? Don't steal from your boss. Don't hit your dad or mom. Please don't do that. There's something in your life that is telling you, you can't do that. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. Some of us have a sensitive conscience. Some of us have a bit of a duller conscience. But the bottom line is, you try and live your life the own way. What you will experience is, there's a cord on your life. There's a restriction. And you've got to almost unlearn it. You've got to kind of push it away and suppress it to live a life that you want to live without any, without any uh, hampering of conscience. The second is, you know that if you look at the creation around you, it is preaching to you all the time. You see the glory of creation? My goodness, it was a stinker today. That glorious sun, it is magnificent. It will burn your eyeballs. And you think to yourself, wow, how did the orbit of earth, and the trajectory of the sun produced days and seasons and years. So powerful that even the ancient civilizations could plot Stonehenge so that you would see the sun rise and would go through these stones perfectly for their solstices and their equinoxes and these magnificent, uh, being able to track the patterns of the universe. Friends, creation itself is preaching and saying, you did not arrive here by accident, and this world is by design. And don't you know, if it's by design, someone had to design it. He's the creator God, and he made you. And this is the bottom line. He owns you. He owns you. And creation preaches that we are not our own. That there is something behind all of this, and he is glorious. He is, his divine attributes and eternal nature is evidenced in what is created. You know, it's amazing for me as a marriage officer, every time I have to take a person's thumb and put it in the ink and put it in the register, and every time it happens, I go, I can't believe this person's one is just unique. Surely. I even try and look sometimes, to see the patterns, the curvature are the same. The design in creation is amazing. It proclaims a God that is universally in charge. And I, I don't have much time to go down that path, but I want to say to you, if this psalm stopped at verse 3... And you saw these nations setting up themselves against God and the leaders, all these men of power and influence. It would seem like an intimidating picture, but my second point tonight is this. Friends, we live in a big context, but we have a bigger God. Verse 46, what is the response to God, to these human beings that are stratching their stuff and saying, we're free, we're modern, we're building our empires, we know exactly what we want. Forget God, he's dead, we don't need him. Cast him off, cast off these bonds. What does it matter? What does God do in response to all of this? Is he going, oh my goodness, I'm so insecure. Oh my word, I don't know what I'm going to say. They make me look like a fool. Does he say, come on, come on human beings, come on SPC. Why don't you defend my reputation here? Why don't you stand up and tell these people they're all wrong? Is he somehow insecure? No, let me tell you what he does. And it's the proof that God has a sense of humor. He laughs. He laughs. I would love to hear God laugh. Have you ever wondered that? I can imagine heaven. <laughs> I thought to myself, you know what? When you think... About the comical nature of the individual human being and then getting together with other human beings to overthrow the, the overlordship of the God of heaven and earth. It is comical, my friend. He laughs. It is, a, it is the greatest comedy ever performed. But it's a tragic comedy. The very thought that this infinitesimally small creature could think he or she could take on the immortal, invisible, eternal God. It's ludicrous. Very nice if you heard that word. It really is. It's ridiculous. Friends, it's like specks of dust taking on an infinite mountain range. Or it's like the clay trying to overthrow the potter. Or it's like the creature thinking he can overthrow the creator God. Do you think it's going to succeed? Ladies and gentlemen, I have to ask you the question and I want a response from you tonight. Do you think the plotting and planning of the human race to overthrow the authority of God is going to succeed? Can you give me a result, a nodding, and a yes or no? Do you think it's going to win? Do you think choosing this way to live your life is going to win? I tell you what it's going to do. It's going to put you on a collision course with God because, my friend, he will not take his ownership of you, and his ownership demands the fact that you are accountable to him and how you live matters because apart from him laughing, he's not just neutral saying, oh, oh that's so funny. Keep going. This is hilarious. What he does is this. He says, I have a response to this rebellion. That's what it is in your hearts and mind to this overlordship of God, and his response is this. It is one of justice and righteous anger against God. The ignoring and suppressing of what is his rightful worship, and he speaks. And praise God, he is not indifferent because we would be in a worse state if he if he was. But he speaks to them in his wrath, and he terrifies them in his fury, saying, Don't you know, ladies and gentlemen, as for me, as the God of heaven and earth, as the God who made all of this, I have installed my king. You want to be your own kings here tonight. Let me tell you, I have installed my king, and he's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and he's seated on an eternal throne, and his name is Jesus, and we are all answerable to him. No argument. And friends, this leads me to my third point. We live in a big context with a bigger God, but oh man, we have a bigger king. Because verse 7 says, God has declared to the world. He says, I will tell of the decree. This is Jesus' voice through, the, through David. David was a prophet. And you will see that this is, this is Jesus speaking prophetically. And God is speaking to the world through the psalm. It says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am, has said to me, you are my son, with a capital S, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance or inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. My friends, tonight, God has spoken prophetically through his word, oh, but not just through his word. He's spoken through the very coming of His Son. The very coming of Jesus Christ. And friends, Jesus Christ has come, the Son of God, and taken on flesh. And Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 2 says, In the past God spoke through Moses and the prophets, but now He has spoken through His Son. And this is not a fairy tale. If anybody is here tonight that thinks I'm talking about a fairy tale, I want to say... I don't mind if you push back in your thinking. I want to know, have you examined the evidence? I have. You know, one of the things about making, th- making you study theology is that you have to do some of these academic researches. And one of the things that I spent hours on was having to examine the evidences, the contemporary evidences for the historical Jesus. Not just his birth, but his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And can I tell you, the evidence is massive massively in favor for this being historical fact. There is a book. It's actually two volumes condensed in one. I think it should become a Christian classic for the church. A brilliant scholar called Josh McDowell. He is much brighter than uh, probably anybody, myself. He wrote this book. says, evidence that demands a verdict. I tell you, read through his magnificent scholarly research of manuscripts, eyewitness accounts, and unpacking and, and pulling apart the four Gospels It is incredible to see the fact of Jesus Christ coming into history. And I ask you tonight, friends, this son of God, he has proclaimed, proclaimed the will of the father and come as the anointed Messiah. And the evidence points that he's right. You know one of the things that I believe, why Jesus' claims are true? It's a small thing, but it's something that I think about often. How many of you have siblings here? You put up a raise huh? I have a sibling, a sister. She's very honest. Imagine if I went to my sister, her name is Kristen, and I said to her, Kirsten, I'm the son of God. I'm sinless. I've done nothing wrong. She'll slap me. She'll arrange for certain institutions to be ready to receive me. Because if there's anybody who knows, the character... Of you, it is your sibling, right? You're plotting against your parents. Your parents don't even know half the things you got up to together. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And now, you, you know what? If cursing, if I tell to curse, I should say, what click are you on, brother? But you know, two of the books of the Bible are written by Jesus, half by this. they half by this because Christ was born by the Spirit. These guys were born by Joseph. James and Jude are God's brothers. Sons, Jesus Christ, the fact that they can attest to this man's divinity and sinlessness for me is the most profound thing. Not only that, but Jesus went through five trials, my friend. Five trials that could not find a single thing to bring against his name. People died for Jesus. Hundreds of people saw his resurrection They saw the evidence of his resurrected body. And these were not just people that had the the nice, cushy culture that we still have in his son that says, Yeah, Jesus is cool, man. Yeah, it's great. These were guys that were hung impaled on poles to light up the Colosseum because they, they they refused to deny the fact that they saw Jesus resurrected in the flesh. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say to you, Jesus has come. And is supreme Messiahhood is there in the resurrection. It is proclaimed, it, pro- he, it proclaims His anointed messianic title. This is where we get it. Today, I have begotten you. It says there in Psalm 2 verse 7. Today means that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and the Father got Him back from the grave. And friend, the worlds have never been the same again. And not only that, He ascended into heaven. And when He got there, the Father said to Jesus, Hey Jesus, ask me anything because you've done all my will. You know what Jesus asked for? He said he asked for the nations, the very nations raging and plotting against his name have been given to Jesus as his inheritance. And friends, his kingdom, his kingly rule, it is moving forward at this stage from heart to heart, in household to household, in street to street, in suburb to suburb, in city to city, to to. to Provinces and provinces to nations and nations. His kingdom is coming one soul at a time. But I want to tell you, there's going to come a day when this son of God is going to come to judge the living and the dead. And friends, this dashing to pieces of pottery with a rod of iron is his authority. Nothing on that day. Please hear me. Nothing. No arguments of why you didn't want to receive him as king and lord. All the clamor of the nations will be silenced in his presence. He's coming again. Right now, he's at work by the Spirit, but then he will come in the flesh. And friends, that is what we live in today. That is the destiny of our lives. That is where this is all going. And tonight, my last point is this. What is the big meaning of all this for you and me? Is David draws this conclusion, I love it, same as Psalm 1 at the end. He says, it's now, therefore, in the light of all these things, 6 p.m., Sterling Baptist Church, what do we make of all of this? Well, he says, first, you better think. He says, be wise. Be wise. Use your mind. Think about where you are in the midst of all of this. Think about your response. Be warned. He says, this king of glory is on his way. Be warned. And the warning is to the leaders of this world, those that seek to influence men and women away from God, they will be held accountable. But also that includes us of how we are going to be led tonight. Which camp are you going to dwell in the world and the clamor of the nations or Yahweh the God of Bible and his son Jesus whom will you follow my friends who is the authority on your life you see because this authority demands a response it says serve the lord With fear, serve Yahweh, says our lives in response to this God, demand obedience to this glorious God of heaven and earth. Serve Him with your will. Give your life to Him. And it says, do so with fear. In other words, that's strange. I I know you don't hear this every day. And I realize this kind of preaching is like, wow, I haven't really heard this around a lot. But I want to say this to you. It is so helpful because preaching is to proclaim the God we are called to worship. And let me tell you, my friends, tonight, this God is not a little puppet that's dancing to your strings. He's not a slot machine that you slot in your few coins of service that you get back your pleasure trips. Let me tell you, this God is not to be tinkered with. He's not made in our image. He is the God of glory. And when we come to him, we are to feel the difference between us and him. And let me tell you, it's the most beautiful thing doesn't just stop there. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Can I tell you what that means? It means, can you imagine, this is me and you. We are born a part of the nations and people. Can I tell you, if you had to peel away my heart tonight, and I I won't want to do it to you, but if you had to peel away your heart tonight, the attitudes and actions of what we have done against God And our our raging against this authority, whether it's at the level of conscience, my friend, whether it's you knew the Bible and you knew what was right and you didn't do it, I want to say there are things in our lives we would not want anybody to know about because we know that if we were examined in the light of this glorious God, we will fall short. We will fall short. And yet, let me tell you, despite Him knowing everything about us, He's offering us goodness. It's incredible. Why do I have to tell you about this God who's a God of glory? Because you don't understand his love until you understand what he has had to deal with. In your heart and mine... Don't think. We come to God with a pretty picture, the mantra of the nations of saying, I want to do things my own way. I can't even feel it tonight. Some of us are in that space. I want to do things my way. I will pick and choose things about God that I like, and I will just flatly ignore the things about him that I don't. That's how we live our lives as 21st century Christians. I want to say to you tonight, God has had to bear with the attitudes and actions of our lives, and some of us for years. And let me tell you, he still offers out Goodness. Goodness. It says, but do so with trembling. Don't forget this. God is good. What does he mean? Don't forget his goodness. And in, remember, don't, in remembering his goodness, don't forget his greatness. Rejoice before him with trembling. Oh, and what is it that he's asking of us? How are we to respond to his authority tonight? How do we come into the presence of God and live? And how do we become his? We are to kiss the Son, my friends. Jesus Christ. Now let me unpack that for you. That might be a bit weird. But this is a royal psalm. Here is, here is the king. And this is what it means to kiss the sun. It's to come down in reverence before this king in worship, in submission, in surrender, in reverence. And it's to take his hand and in reverence to kiss it. And to say, I'm coming under your protection. I'm coming under your covering. I'm yours. That's what it means. Friends, can I save you a lot of trouble in your life tonight? Don't try and kiss God with a general G. Don't try and bring some evidence of your life before him and thinking, I'm on track with God. I'm spiritual. I can kind of figure this out. Let me tell you, the Bible will tell you clear. It will say this, you cannot kiss God until you've kissed his son. You cannot kiss God. You cannot worship him and say, I'm good with God. I'm good. Yeah, I know, man. I pray. I lift up some prayers to him. I'm I'm all right. You cannot kiss the God of heaven and earth unless you have come and kissed his son first. He says, you make right with him and you'll be right with me. Friends tonight, have you kissed the son? Have you kissed the sun? There's an urgency here, and I, I want to communicate this. This is not something to be taken for granted tonight. He says, what is the thing? Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath can quickly be kindled. What does that mean? He said, You don't know how much you've got along the way. You don't know how much time you've got. He man, he's sitting on a mercy seat right now. But when he comes again, he's going to sit in a seat of judgment. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Which camp are you on? Don't leave this. Don't mess around with it. Don't play around with it. Don't say I've got tomorrow. I've got the next day. I've got I'll, I'll wait till twenty years later when I've got to be responsible. My friends, tonight, what are you doing in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ? Have you kissed him? Because if not, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And let me introduce you to the God of goodness who is offering his son. And that is where you must start tonight. And that is where you must stay. You see, the things we do is some of us here have been Christians for a long time. We just tune in for the gospel. Oh, that's for the unsaved. Rubbish. Rubbish. Let me tell you, the son and kissing him is not a moment. 6 p.m. hear me tonight. It is a lifestyle. It is finding refuge. The blessed goodness of God. The very last line of the song. It is finding refuge day in and day out in the covering of Jesus. We kiss the Son. Our allegiance is to him. And so tonight, I ask you, maybe there's some of you need to kiss the sun for the first time. That's what it means to be a Christian, is you've seen this Jesus and gone, This other way, it's not working. It's terrible. I have tried to be my own shepherd. I've tried to prove my case before God. I've raged against him. And let me tell you tonight, my friends, it is a lonely place to be. You try and lean on your friends, they will change and move on. You try and lean on your parents, one day they will die. You try and lean on your marriage, you try and do that, it will break your marriage. Today, there is no other refuge outside of Jesus. And that is the point. There is only one route to blessed happiness. There's only one route to experiencing the goodness of God poured out through His Son. It's if you will kiss the Son. Have you done that, my friend? Have you done that? Forget about your track record. Who are you tracking with tonight? Who are you going towards? Is it Jesus? But then for us here, I just sense there is wrestling in lives. Oh, man, I just sense that here tonight, you had some, some of us at a crossroads of decision. You're going, God, what do I do here? I, I've, got to, I've got to trust you in this, but I want to go the easier way. I want to do the different way. I want to go the, the, the path of least resistance. But I know in my life that Jesus, you're calling me to live another way. What are you going to do? My friend, you kiss the sun. You say, I'm responding to your authority, no matter the pain, no matter the difficulty. You emulate the one that you are saved by, Jesus Christ, sweated blood. In that garden of Gethsemane, he had to decide who was he going to kiss. And he kissed his father. My friend, are you going to kiss the son tonight? I, I plead with you. I make you a promise based on the promise of the word of God. If you will choose Jesus with your body, Jesus with your mind, Jesus with your finances, Jesus with your friendships, Jesus with the whole mission of your life, it will lead to the greatest blessing that you can ever experience. But then there are also some of us here, and this is the gospel in one word tonight. Do you notice that glorious word? man, Blessed are all. Can everyone say all? Say it one more time. All. Let me tell you when I sort of thought about this. And if I think about the brokenness of humanity in that one word, anybody is welcome to come to Jesus. The rapist tonight, the murderer tonight, the one who has done some of the worst. It might have even happened tonight. You haven't told your parents. You haven't told your girlfriend. You haven't told your wife. It could be something that you're so ashamed of. It could be something that could be sitting in the law, might even be hunting you tonight. I want to say to you, where are you going to find refuge? The all is for you, my brother and my sister. You come to Jesus and you find peace with God through him. And you know, Christians make dumb decisions. I'm one of them. We really do. Welcome to the mess that is being sorted out by Jesus Christ. Can I say to you tonight, my friends, sometimes Christians can backslide badly. Badly. What is your refuge? Where are you going to go tonight? Are you going to sit in the shadows? Friends, when you see all... All there, it is a call to you to come and to take God at his word. Come and kiss the sun and experience the blood of Jesus washing away your sin. You will move forward and no longer be stuck. And you will find what you truly long for is the joy and blessedness of being close to God. Kissing the sun is the most intimate space that you can get. It is coming to Jesus, into his presence, hearing his heartbeat, feeling his breath, experiencing his touch. To kiss the sun is to draw near to the living God. It's there for you. It's there for you. But you have to kiss the sun. Let's pray. There's some here who need to kiss the sun for the first time. If that's you tonight, you're just going, man, I need to get right with Jesus. Would you do that tonight? This is not for anybody else. This is for the sake of your soul, my friend. And for the honor of Jesus. Would you say to Jesus, I want to kiss you tonight as my king. I want to bow the knee of submission of my life and trust you to be my savior, to be my Lord. My life is yours.